0: uh, we start a new series today, as Troy mentioned I'm really excited about this we've called it the point it's kind of a cryptic title it's simply a a series on our statement of faith which if you go to our website you can find you don't have to because we're gonna be highlighting it throughout the next few months here at our church but we're just gonna walk line by line through our statement of faith and take a look at doctrine those things that we believe that we hold very very dear And though doctrine's got a bad rap today in society, a lot of people think it's dry and boring and irrelevant and things like that, my goal today is simply to show you that that's not true, that that doctrine by its very nature is life-giving, it's foundational, it's core to our actual experience uh, as human beings as well as those of us who choose to follow God, doctrine is so critical, and so you're going to see that today. Now, we're really blessed in this church in that we have a lot of resources available to us, not the least of which is that we have an informal tie to Phoenix Seminary, one of the great seminaries here in the Southwest for training young pastors. And about half the professors are Sunday school teachers here in our church, and one of the professors who is known worldwide wide with his research in systematic theology is Dr. Wayne Grudem. He's a Sunday school teacher in this church, he's on our council of elders. He was one of my professors when I was back in seminary when Jesus was on this earth, and so he's uh, an amazing individual. Uh, He's got his PhD from Cambridge, uh, got his master's at Westminster, undergrad at Harvard. I mean, he's just a brilliant man, and he's written a systematic theology that that many people use, again, throughout the whole world. So I called Wayne about three, four months ago in in preparation for a series, and I said, would you you do your church some favors? And he said, what? And I said, three things I want from you. One, I want you to preach at some point in this series. I want want the people to hear from you uh, as one of our elders and as an expert in systematic theology. So on February 26th, I'll be here that day, but Wayne's going to do the sermon. And then secondly, I said I'd like to interview you on our statement of faith. I want to just get a bunch of video clips with you telling us what inerrancy is and atonement and why the Bible's important and the Trinity and things like that. And so we did that a few weeks ago and we're going to show you clips throughout today and even in the coming weeks. And then I said, thirdly, and I was really shocked he allowed us to do this, I said, I'd like to promote and make available for sale your systematic theology. And lo and behold, he said, yes. And so uh, we've, uh, now, here's the bummer with being the third service. It's like being the third child where you get all the hand-me-downs. We ran out of copies last service. We thought we had enough. We ordered 300 copies of Wayne's Systematic Theology, uh, but because I think we sold them at cost, you can actually get it cheaper through us than Amazon.com. I looked, and so uh, it's usually a $50 thing because it's really uh, thick. It's like 1,200 pages long. It's like a Missioner novel, but it it reads really well. It reads like a Missioner novel, in my opinion. And, uh, and it's very, very good, and we're making it available to you for $25. So Mary Ann said you can come to the bookstore today, and I think either uh, see if we can get a certificate for you or whatever. We're getting a, uh, a bunch more in this week. We'll have them available either midweek or for next Sunday. And then you'll notice on the outline, every week I'm going to tell you uh, what pages I've been reading from and what pages I'm going to be referencing so that you can kind of follow along if you choose to do this. You obviously don't have to do this, we're not trying to give you homework. but if you wanted to get more out of our study you might want to pick up a copy of this it's a great reference anyways i think for every christian to have on their on in their resource base so feel free to do that now with that said no more preliminaries or introductions i want to dive right in and uh, let's pray and then we're going to dig deep in god's word today Father, thank you for, as we're going to see today, that you've revealed yourself, that you have spoken to us in your word. And contrary, Lord, to what some folks think, that your word is difficult to understand or self contradictory or what all the things we hear today about the Bible, we're going to see today that's not true. And and that, Father, you've spoken cogently, intelligently, relevantly, practically to our lives, and it's going to affect even what we believe. And so, God, I pray. That as we open up your book now, that you'd give us wisdom, insight, discernment, guide us into truth as you promised that you would do. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So a uh, state trooper is parked along the side of the road. Picture him there trying to catch speeding drivers. And he sees a car puttering at 22 miles per hour. And thinking that this driver is just as dangerous as a speeder, the trooper turns on his lights and pulls the car over. As he approaches the vehicle, the officer notices that there are five elderly ladies in this car, two in the front seat, three in the back seat, and that they are wide-eyed and white as ghosts. The driver, obviously confused, says, Officer, I don't understand. I was going exactly the speed limit. What seems to be the problem? The trooper explained to her that 22 was the route number, not the speed limit. And a bit embarrassed, the, the woman thanks him and, and grins to herself and thanks for him pointing out the error. And the officer says, before I go, i got to ask, is everybody okay? These women seem awfully shaken. To which the lady says, oh, they'll be all right. We just got off Route 127. <laughs> I tell you, for those of you who aren't laughing, you're writing it down, though. You are. You're going to... You will use that joke this week. It's just, it's friendly. I love that joke. I read that in my office this week, and I thought, that is just classic. I mean, it, 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 just, it speaks well. And what I like about it is that the obvious moral of that story is that, you know, you got to make sure you're reading the signs right, right? That we've all had experiences where we're just not quite reading the signs right in front of us in a correct way. I want you to think about your life on that level. Forget about elderly ladies and driving and misreading a root sign, but think about more broadly your entire life and ask yourself, isn't there times where you and I do similar things where we have data right in front of us, but we misread or misinterpret the data? Like, for instance, you come home and and your wife or husband is all angry and they're grouchy and they're in a bad mood and you immediately think to yourself, what did I do? what have i done only to find out a little bit later that you did nothing that it's just more about the bad day that he or she had you misread the data initially or how many times have you heard this a parent or a grandparent that thinks everything's fine with their kids only to find out that their children are struggling deeply in certain areas in their lives they they, they just missed it or how about the person who thinks everything is great at work only to get fired the next week or the person who thinks that everything's great with the Dow, only to have it plunge into recession territory. I mean, the list could go on and on. A friend, your best friend, whom you think would never lie to you, only to find out that they've been lying to you for years. We miss the signs. I would submit to you that that's just part of our fallen nature, our human frailty, that we have this innate propensity to misread the signs right in front of us, and all of us do it. We don't always see things as they really are. We're just not perfect. We are mistake-ridden people, and part of being fallen, part of having the fall of humanity in our souls is that it affects the way that we see things in the world around us. And probably most scary for me as a pastor and as a Christian is that when we drag this lack of human discernment into our spiritual lives, whoa, have we now made a mess of things. I mean, how many times has this happened to us? We assume that God is this way or that way, only to find that God is not like that at all. Or we think that the spiritual life should be accomplished in this fashion or that fashion, only to find out that that's not true at all. I've seen this happen just in my generation alone and being a Christian now for 30 years and a pastor for 20, people that were raised in a very legalistic environment where they were basically told either overtly or covertly that lifestyle and rules were the name of the game. And even many of the rules were more gray area rules, don't go to certain movies, don't dance, don't smoke, don't drink cards, I mean all the things that that Christianity was about. Did I say don't drink cards? Anyways, don't play cards. (laughs) All the things that, that Christianity was about back in the 1950s. And, and then all of a sudden you get into a more grace-based church as an adult and you realize that that's not the case at all. That though God does care about our morality, there's much more to him than that. It's about a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. We misread the signs. We were duped when we were younger. We didn't quite know what was Trump. And now even as adults we do the same thing. We make decisions about our finances, our marriage, our parenting, our friendships, our work, our personal lives, everything. And tell me it doesn't happen to you. You think you're making the right decision at the time only to find out in hindsight that you could have done better, that you could have made a wiser decision. The marriage didn't need to end. We didn't need to go into debt. We didn't need to end up hurting our children. We didn't need to sever that friendship. Reconciliation was possible. We didn't need to cop that attitude at work. I mean, just like an elderly lady think that she's reading the right sign and yet about ready to endanger everybody else around her, we tend to read the wrong signs too. We tend to think that we're doing the right thing and only end up doing the wrong thing because we read the signs wrongly. And what I'm going to submit to you folks beginning this week and then carrying us over the next two to three months here at our church is that it is doctrine, doctrine, this idea of core, robust theological truths based on a right understanding of the Bible, of God and life that is absolutely indispensable when it comes to reading the signs around us. I'm going to submit to you that it's doctrine. What some people see as dry and boring and non-applicable to life that is precisely the opposite, that doctrine is life-giving, it's life-enhancing, and it's core to you and I understanding life and all the things around us. That doctrine that is accurate and based on the Bible is a good thing and something that we should all be interested in when it comes to our spiritual lives. And I want to show you this in black and white. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want to share with you a simple but very very profound passage from the Bible. It's found in the New Testament book of Titus. And so if you brought a Bible, open up to Titus uh, chapter 2, verse 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. There's one in the pew rack in front of you. We're also going to put the scripture up here on the screen. So this is a simple passage, but as you're going to see, it carries some very profound truth. Titus 2, verse 1. It says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Believe it or not, folks, I spent a half day in just this passage this week. I did. It is that rich in what it's talking about here. The context here is obviously of Paul writing to Titus, one of his right-hand men. And at this point, Titus is on the island of Crete, where he's been planting a church for a while, and he's asking Paul's help on how he can best share Christ or share the spiritual life with these people. And so Paul's writing him here in Titus, what we call one of Paul's pastoral letters, and the things that that church needs to know the most, and that Titus needs to know the most, when it comes to getting the most out of their walk with Christ. How do they make sure that they don't misread life and what it means to know and follow God? And what does Paul say? He says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That word teacher literally means to speak. It's a very simple term. It simply means to say something, to vocally project your voice, forming words that carry ideas that just might nudge people off center and make a dent in their worldview. Paul is saying to Titus, make sure that you talk to the people, telling them certain things that they need to know, but not just anything. Notice that Paul tells Titus to teach what accords, in other words, what fits into, like a hand in a glove, what collates with, and here's the key, sound doctrine, sound doctrine. Now that word sound there simply means healthy. Healthy it carries with it the idea of safe and sound kind of like a safe harbor in which a boat is resting in and then that that word doctrine there literally means to learn something to gain content oriented knowledge that you apply to life as some of you know the bible was originally written in greek and so they teach pastors to study the greek language so we can study what god has originally said to us in the bible in the greek language When I was looking up this word doctrine here in the Greek language, I found it fascinating. The history of this word literally means something that is intellectually stimulating and carries authority in what it says. And as I trace the origin of this word in the New Testament, it occurs some 21 times in the New Testament, six times in the Gospels, and then 15 times in the Epistles. And when you look at all the occurrences of this word doctrine, get this, it tells us three things that are really important about doctrine. It tells us to avoid human-based faulty teaching, It tells us to embrace embrace God-based correct teaching and then to protect this God-based correct teaching from getting confused with the human-based stuff. And so unpack that a little bit. Jesus, when he was talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of his day, at one point in Matthew 15, 9, accuses them of teaching doctrines as doctrines, the commandments of men. The same word here in Titus, Jesus used. He says you're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, the connotation there is to avoid this stuff. That there are certain people out there that will give you their opinion, sometimes even religious leaders, about who God is and what he is like and even what we should do here in life. And Jesus says, man, I tell you, that's just man's opinion. Avoid that stuff. That's not going to work for you. And so obviously what Jesus is saying here is that we don't listen to everything that we hear on the History Channel when it comes to religion. We don't read or listen to everything that we read when it comes to a New York Times bestseller book on spirituality. That we don't always listen to what Oprah says about spiritual things. That there are certain things we're going to hear in this world about who God is and what he is like and we need to be careful That there's such thing as man-made doctrine, man-made truth, that even Jesus says is not true, it's not right. So what do we do? What's the second thing this word shows us? And that is that we then need to embrace what God says is true. Uh, This is 1 Timothy 4, 13. Again, using the same word doctrine, Paul tells us to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Again, it's the same word translated in Titus there, doctrine. 2 Timothy 3.16 says the same thing when it tells us that the Bible, we'll get to this in a second here, is profitable for teaching doctrine for reproof correction for training in righteousness. So don't miss this. We're to embrace God's doctrine, His truth for our life. And then not stopping there, tracing this word even further, it tells us then to protect God's doctrine. So avoid certain things, embrace other things, and then protect that which you embrace. 1 Timothy 1.10 says to resist anything contrary to sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.6 praises good doctrine when you and I follow it. And then Titus 2.1, our passage before us, obviously telling us to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Don't miss this. The New Testament is telling us to protect this thing called doctrine to make sure it is sound and good. So you get the idea, hopefully. But whatever this passage in Titus is telling us, we know at the very least it's telling us that doctrine matters. It's a very, very important thing to our lives. It affects our worldview. It affects Monday through Saturday in how we think, feel, behave, that we all have doctrine, it's either man-made or God-made, we all have things that we believe, and that the Bible here is saying avoid certain things, embrace certain things, and then protect that which you know to be true. And the question that you and I should be asking at this point, once we understand how the Bible underlines and bolds this thing called doctrine, is why? Why is it that God is so concerned that we all embrace and protect this thing called doctrine? Three things I want to leave you with here this morning. Three reasons that Christianity for 2,000 years now has embraced and protected doctrine. Three reasons why you and I should be so very interested in and attuned to Christian doctrine and even what our own statement of faith here says at our church. And the first reason is this, because God is a God of truth. And without truth, there is no way we can know God. I'm not overstating it. God is a God of truth, and without truth, you and I do not know God in any meaningful way at all. Simply put, truth matters. We must have truth in order not to misread the signs of life. And doctrine, as we're going to see in just a second here, is key to discerning truth you know to this point our discussion we have yet to define the main term before us doctrine and as many of you know I don't usually do that so let's do it now if you were to look up the term doctrine at Webster's Merriam-Webster's online dictionary you'd get a definition similar to this look up here on the screen it would say that doctrine is an authoritative statement based upon a system of belief it's an authoritative statement or set of statements based on a system of belief So, for instance, if you have political doctrines in your life, those are simply things that you believe about the political realm, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or whatever you are. There are certain things that you believe to be true about the political realm that guide you in your voting, that guide you in how you think about politics. They're your doctrines. Or if you have economic doctrines, whether you're a capitalist or a socialist or what have you, you have certain doctrines, things that you believe, values that you hold dear, that you hopefully can defend, that guide you in the way that you view the economies around you. And so with that understanding, Christian doctrine then is simply what you and me believe about God and the spiritual life. And as we're going to see in just a second here, we get this stuff from the Bible without which we do not know God. And so I like how Wayne Grudem very clearly and simply defines Christian doctrine in his systematic theology that we're asking you guys to to look at during this series. Look at what he says on page 25. He says a doctrine is what the whole Bible teaches us today about some particular topic. A doctrine is what the Bible teaches us about some particular topic. And so Christian doctrine is simply what the Bible tells us about God and life, all of life, topic by topic, whether it's your walk with God, your marriage, your money, your parenting, your job, your hobbies, who God is, what he is like, how to get to heaven, what it's going to be like when you're there, doctrine is equated with truth, without which we do not know anything meaningful or substantive about Almighty God. Maybe this will help you here. Carl Henry was one of my professors when I was back in seminary. I was honored to study under him. Carl Henry was the founding editor of Christianity Today magazine. He was one of the founding professors at Fuller Seminary. He wrote dozens of books, including a massive six-volume set called God, Revelation, and Authority. He had multiple PhDs. He was Time Magazine's Evangelical of the Year in 1978. He passed away in about 1994. And at one point in his writings, he was talking to us about this idea of why Christian truth and doctrine is so important, and his logic, in my opinion, is flawless. Look up here on the screen. He says, Christianity, for all its emphasis on personal trust in the living God, now here it is, does not expound believing in God in isolation from believing about God. I, I like that hang with me. Christianity does not expound believing in God in isolation from believing about God. So Henry is suggesting here that in order to believe in God, you need to know a few things about him. And though this guy's a heavyweight intellectual, you and I should be responding to that by like saying, duh, of course that's true. But many of us live like it's not. When it comes to God, I mean, think about it. Would you ever marry someone that you didn't know anything about? Would you ever become a good friend? Some of you are saying, Yes, I did. It was in Vegas. Big mistake. (laughs) Would you ever, would you ever become good friends with somebody that you don't know anything about? Would you ever enter into a substantive business partnership with somebody that you don't know anything about? I think we all know the answer to that question no we wouldn't function like that in life so why is it then do we think that god would ever ask us to believe in him if he doesn't first tell us certain things about who he is that's what henry is saying there he's saying cogent christian theology for 2,000 years now has always maintained that the reason doctrine is important is because it tells us certain things about god so that you and i might believe in him no one believes in anything unless they first know about that which they're believing in and folks that's why doctrine is so important because if you and I don't have right doctrine what's that going to do to us in our relationship with God I-, I tell you it'll affect it drastically As we'll see in a second here doctrine's not just the foundation of your experience with God it's determinative in how you experience God just as if The knowledge you have about another person this side of heaven is determinative of your experience of him or her. Uh, Let's listen to Grudem on this. In my first interview with uh, Wayne Grudem, before I asked him anything about his statement of faith, I said, tell us about doctrine. Why is doctrine so important? And and I love how he answered this. Look up here on the screen. Dr. Grudem, thank you for being with us here today and for uh, agreeing to help us with our statement of faith. And as we've explained, our statement of faith is all about doctrine. It's about helping us understand the truths of God from the Bible that guide us in our lives. And I guess I'd like to begin by simply asking you why does doctrine matter? Why is doctrine so important?
1: Doctrine is important because what you think and believe affects everything in your life. That's why God gave us a Bible full of teachings so that we would think rightly about Him and our responsibility in the world it says in Proverbs 4:23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life in the Bible our heart is not just our it includes our emotions and our feelings but it also includes our beliefs and our deepest convictions and so what we want to do in uh, studying doctrine is to study the teachings of the Bible so that our hearts are anchored in truths about God rather than believing lies which come to us from the secular culture so often. Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. It's a picture of a stream of water flowing out from our heart and it's like our life is a stream of water touching everybody that we come in contact with. What does that flow out of? It flows out of the deepest convictions in our hearts. That's the fundamental reason for studying doctrine.
0: Because doctrine informs the deepest convictions it of does, our hearts. Yes, do, do you think it anchors it, them. Would it be too strong to say that one cannot know God outside of doctrine?
1: Well, you have to know who God is. Yeah. How can you know someone that you know nothing about? Yeah. Um, and uh, how can you come to trust in Christ for salvation unless you know who Jesus is and what, what it is to trust Him? What salvation is? What sin is that you're being rescued from? Those are all doctrines. Those are the great truths of the Bible and that's why doctrine is important. It, doctrine simply means the teachings of the Bible. Yeah,
0: so far from boring theology, doctrine is really the lifeblood of our knowledge of God, lifeblood of eventually what would be our experience of God.
1: It really is.
0: So whether it's a doctrine of salvation, that as we're gonna see in a few weeks, tells us that it's through faith alone in Christ alone, that you and I can experience God most deeply in in, in a forgiving relationship, or or whether it's the doctrine of the Trinity that helps us understand the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and how they all complement one another, one God and three persons, or whether it's even a doctrine of parenting in in which you and I realize that compassion and relationality mixed with discipline must go together in order to raise our kids right. I, I mean, it's all the same. A doctrine is so incredibly needed because without doctrine, we don't have a worldview. Without doctrine, we don't have truth. And without truth, we don't know God. And we don't know how to function. That's why doctrine is so important. It's not only the foundation of what we believe, but it's the determinative entity of what's gonna actually declare our experience with God. And so the question I want you to wrestle with now then is how do we get Christian doctrine then? I mean it would be fair to say that the Christians over the last 2,000 years, have not always done doctrine well. We've messed this thing up. We've got multiple denominations. We tend to shoot our own wounded. We don't always agree on everything. All that's a given. So, so how do we wade through that entire mess and get good doctrine that will lead to this truth and life that we all desire? And this is the second thing I want to share with you in our discussion of doctrine. And that is that God has revealed both himself and the truth about this world in what I'm going to label divinely intelligible propositions. Now hang with me. This is why my kids call me a dork. Divinely intelligible propositions that I would argue are the basis of our doctrine. Now now, know what I mean by this. I want you to think about this with me, folks. God, who, as we just saw, cares about this thing called doctrine and wants us to know him and the truth of this world, has also revealed himself. Did you know that? He has revealed himself. And he's revealed himself in two primary ways in history. The first way is through Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, coming to this world as God, to be the final payment and penalty for our sins so that we might be forgiven and have a relationship with God, what the Bible calls the living word, the logos of God, Jesus. But then the second way God has revealed himself to us, isn't this interesting, also is the same play on that word, that Greek word logos, the word, and that's that he's revealed himself to us in the written word. And though most people know that that the bible is a holy book and christians really like it and they read it and it informs them about god what you need to see today and we're going to pick up on this a little bit next week is that we're saying something much stronger than that that what we say as christians what the bible self attests to is the fact that god has spoken to us In and through this book, 66 books spanning a 1,500-year period of time in which it all hangs together, there's no contradictions within it, and God uses propositions, statements about who he is, who we are, what this life is like, what our marriage is to be, our finances, our work, our parenting, our jobs, everything. He gives us propositions that we can understand that then form our theology and doctrine. That's the whole purpose of the Bible, is that God decided to give us truth about himself, propositions that we can understand. Theologians call this propositional revelation, and I'm telling you, it's core to realizing how we get doctrine as Christians and even why doctrine is so important. And so look up here on the screen. Maybe this will help. Let me show you how this all fits together. What, what Christian theology for 2,000 years has made clear is that there's three components to you and I arriving at truth. And it all begins, you'll notice there, on your left, upper left, with revelation. The fact, is, I just said, that God has revealed himself in the man Jesus Christ, but then also through the Bible in words that convey ideas. I, I like how one author says it. He says, God is a God who stands, stoops, and speaks kind of like a good father would to their children he stands and he stoops and he speaks some people have the conception of god that he stands he takes a step back crosses his arms and says good luck that's not god god in the bible has stand because he's strong and he's tall and he's god he's stooped to be with us in jesus and he has spoken to us and this idea that God has spoken forms his revelation, and it's so incredibly important. Because once you start reading his revelation, then you're ready for doctrine. Because, as I'll show you in a second here on different topics, you read what God has said so clearly in divinely intelligible propositions to us, and you start to string those things together on every topic in life, and you realize that now you've got a doctrine in which you can live by. And before you know it, you're in the realm of truth. That now all of a sudden you have truth for living as you've strung together revelation, what God has revealed, doctrine, statements that are true, truth that you can live by. And so let me give you a couple of very practical examples that I think will bring this home to you. Say tomorrow morning you decide you want to have what Christians call a quiet time. Just a time where you get away with you and God before you start your work. And so you, you wake up a little bit earlier than you usually do. You go to your quiet space in your house or on your back porch or at Starbucks, or wherever you go, and you open up your Bible and, and you open up to Matthew 28, verse 20. Matthew 28, verse 20 are some of Jesus' very last words, and you read Jesus saying this, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Those are some of Jesus' last words. Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And being a rather bright person, you say to yourself, I wonder what he's saying there. And you say, it sounds like what he's saying is is that he's always going to be with us. That even to the end of time, whatever that means, he's going to be with us, even though he's resurrecting into heaven in just a few minutes or ascending into heaven, that he's always going to be with us in some special way. And you'd be reading that passage right. And then all of a sudden you decide, you know, I want to find out if there are other passages that talk about that. So you maybe look in the concordance there about the presence of God. And, and all of a sudden you read Psalm 139, wh- where the psalmist says, you know, if I go down to hell, God is there. If I go up to heaven, God is there. If I go to the far corners of the earth, God is there. Where can I flee from his presence? Nowhere. And you go, man, it sounds like God is everywhere all the time. And, and that there's never a place I can go where he is not And it even seems like as followers of Jesus that there's a special presence of God, that he's always with me. And before you know it, just by reading two passages, you have stumbled onto a wonderful doctrine in the scriptures called the omnipresence of God. The fact that he is everywhere, always present. Why? Because he's God, and God can be everywhere all the time. And just through stringing together a couple of passages, you've gone from revelation to doctrine. Now you realize the omnipresence of God and here's the cool thing about it you started that quiet time on monday you have a real bad day monday you're driving home monday and you don't feel like the god's presence is with you you're really not thinking that he's with you you wonder where he is in the midst of the very difficult day but because your doctrine's right you say i know exactly where god is he's in this car with me right now even though my feelings tell me otherwise and my thoughts are kind of messed up i know that god is with me because he is good and he has promised to be with me anywhere and everywhere And that's how it works as John Piper says you're banking on future grace because you're claiming the promises of God and when you do that stringing together revelation doctrine and truth you will experience him then as the God who he really is or or how about this one Proverbs 22 verse 7 that's kind of a cool passage many of you have heard this before it says the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the lender not a very positive passage, is it? The rich rule over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the lender. Again, you're reading that in your quiet time and you're saying, what does it mean? It doesn't take a Rhodes Scholar to figure this one out. It's basically saying that the rich have power over the poor and that it's an economic power and that anytime you borrow money, whether it's from Citibank, Wells Fargo, or a friend, it might be a dangerous thing that debt by its very nature of it carries risks with it and that it's dangerous and then when you combine this with other passages in the bible because again you're interested in doctrine before you know it, you're developing a doctrine of what we call cash and debt and though some people disagree on how bad debt is at the very least they all agree that debt should be avoided that you don't want to become a slave to the lender as the borrower and so you want to be very careful with debt and talk about practical that night after having that quiet time, you're in Best Buy. And you're thinking how crummy your 28 inch HD TV is, and you're looking at a 45 inch HD TV. The only problem is you realize that you don't have cash for a 45 inch TV, but you do have a Wells Fargo credit card. And so, what are you tempted to do? Put it on credit. But it's just a TV for crying out loud, and you read Proverbs 22.7, and you now have a cogent theology complete with doctrine that tells you that just because you can put something on credit, why would you want to become a slave to Wells Fargo, I don't mean to pick on Wells Fargo, Citibank, why would you want to become a slave to any of those places, no, I think I'll wait. And though you feel a little bit depressed walking out of Best Buy because you don't have your TV, try it sometime, you feel really good about your walk with God. That that sometimes absence is good for the soul, and you feel like you're on the right road developing the kind of walk that he wants for you. You feel his smile in that moment. And yet think where all that came from. Doctrine. All that came from you thinking rightly about the world around you, informed by the scriptures where you get your truth from, and now you're living life. And folks, those are just two very, very, very small examples. I could go on and on about how important doctrine is. I mean, let this sink in a moment. The God who loves you and made you, who has reached out to you and offered you a second chance in Jesus Christ, has further declared to you in time and space and languages you can understand, life-giving truths about who he is, what he's like, how you can know him, how you can follow him, how you can live life this side of heaven that stands the best chance of bringing joy, meaning, purpose, and peace to your life. I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian, I thought, I think I want to read that book. I think I'd like to know everything about it. I mean, this should fire any and all of us up about this thing called doctrine. Boring, irrelevant, dry, hardly life-giving to our souls. I got to tell you, I go on and on about examples of this. I I had a rough day just this past week on, on, I think it was Tuesday, where I was just battling my own demons and other things in my life. And, you know, I was coming back into the fray of the church, which is always hard when I've been away a little bit because problems await me. And and I just want a good day Tuesday. So as so I was driving home that day and, and I was just thinking about my, uh, my life and all of this and, and I was thinking, okay, so how do I make sense of all of this? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of suffering and I'm not enjoying things and so what do I do? And, and you know, I had a quiet time that day and that didn't work and I've been praying all day and that didn't seem to work and I'm, I'm, I'm talking to friends and my wife and that didn't seem to work and, and so then I, th- I thought of Psalm uh, chapter 30, Psalm chapter 30, which I, I knew from before, verses 4 and 5. And, and I knew that Psalm 30, David was struggling with similar things. And so I, I went there and it said this. It said, sing praises to the Lord, O you as saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Now here it is. For his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy will come in the morning. Now how, how do you understand that passage? His favor is for a lifetime. That that weeping is going to be a part of life, difficulty, and struggle, and and it might be for a night. But but joy is is going to come in the morning for those who hang in there. I I read that and I thought, well, this too will pass. And if I know God, that that joy is going to come again. And lo and behold, it, it, it did. But it was his revelation, his word, giving me good truth and doctrine that allowed me to see that even though my experience that day was kind of messed up are you seeing how this works folks God is a God of truth and without truth we do not know God and further he has given us his truth in the form of revelation that becomes doctrine and that's why it's so important because you see in the end and with this we're done doctrine then has the power to provide clarity and unity and guidance for all of us as a church as well as for our individual lives. These are really the practical reasons for those of you who need this on why doctrine is so critical for our lives and our church. It it gives us clarity. We've seen that today. It helps us understand who God is and what our lives are supposed to be about. It gives us unity. This only makes sense. Doctrine defines or describes for us uh, who God is and what he is like, and we all rally around those things. When we rally around them together, we have unity. And doctrine gives us guidance. Certainly it helps us keep our our lives on the straight and narrow. And so, folks, this is why this series that we're beginning this week is so important for us. As we go through all the major statements in our statement of faith, sin, salvation, the church, the end times, the trinity, the person of Christ, it's going to do nothing but add clarity and unity and guidance to our individual lives and to us as the church going back to where we started this morning it's going to help us read the signs right it's going to help us in life one last illustration that I promise you you're gonna like because it's hilarious and then we'll pray and be done the year was 1997 there was a 14 year old student at a small high school in Idaho Falls Idaho named Nathan Zoner and they had to do a science project that year, and so Nathan Zoner decided that for his science project he was going to try to wake the kids up to the negative reality of a nasty chemical called dihydrogen monoxide. And so he put before his fellow students that dihydrogen monoxide causes severe burns, it accelerates the corrosion and rusting of many metals, it's been found in the excised tumors of terminal cancer patients, He further noted that it's used in his industrial solvent and a coolant, it's used in the production of styrofoam, and as a fire retardant. As if that's not bad enough, he pointed out that dihydrogen monoxide is actually being used by some students in their class, and once they ingest it, it actually becomes a dependent kind of drug to the point where it's so dependent that if you then try to go without it, you will die. And so as part of this science project, he went around to all the 50 freshmen at his high school, and he had them sign a petition to try to get people to ban dihydrogen monoxide. 43 students, immediately seeing the evidence, decided to ban this thing, so they signed the petition. Six of them were kind of unclear on it, so they withheld their signature. It was only one, one person, that looked at Nathan and said, you got to be kidding me. Dihydrogen monoxide, are people dumb? That's water, h and he said what are you trying to pull over on us and Nathan declared at that time he said indeed it is water water may cause severe burns it accelerates the corrosion and rusting of many metals it's been found in the excised tumors of cancer patients water is used as an industrial solvent and coolant it's used in the production of styrofoam and it's used as a fire retardant further water is ingested by many people It becomes addictive and if you try to go off it you will die he said, I was correct in everything that I said. It's not my problem that you don't know what dihydrogen monoxide is, even though all of you want it banned. And when Nathan did this as a science project, it made national news in 1997, and all the pundits were talking about it. And what I thought was hilarious at the time, and we seeing this, is that many of us were saying, you know, look how stupid our freshmen were in high school. A decade later, this was going viral on the internet, this idea of dihydrogen monoxide, and I kid you not, I can document this, there was a municipality in California in which somebody got wind of this and got the entire city council to vote to ban dihydrogen monoxide. They're no longer freshmen in high school then. And let's be honest, how many of you caught this until the punchline? Very few of you did. I didn't. When I was reading this initially, I thought, where do I sign up? Aaron Brockovich, all over again. By the way, in first service, they had no idea what I meant by that. You guys are more with it. But think about what's happening there. Something that you and I are so familiar with, water, that we're exposed to every day, but within one petition, people have the power to change our entire view of it. I and mean, that's what I meant when I said earlier there are so many ways we can misread data in life. And it's one thing to have that happen with water, but pity us if it ever happens to us on a spiritual level. Amen? Pity us if we aren't so solid in our view of Jesus, the Bible, the truths of God, what our lives are to be about. Pity us if somebody could come along and change us like that. That's what Ephesians 4 is getting at when it says that as you get grounded theologically, you'll no longer be tossed here and there by every wind and wave of teaching. Again, that's that word doctrine there. You'll no longer be tossed by that, but you'll be solid. As Jesus said, you'll be building your castle on solid ground, and that's what we want to do in this series, and I think it's going to be eminently helpful for all of us. Let's pray. Father, if I don't miss my guess, there's not one person in this worship center here this morning that isn't after truth lord it's something we're all hardwired to do we want truth and lord though it is a complicated thing to to know where and how to find truth i thank you for the clarity and the unity and the guidance that your word gives us on at least directing us where we can find truth and that's in what you've revealed to us throughout history in your word the bible and so god i pray that as we string together revelation and then doctrine and then truth that God, indeed, you might cement us even more and more. God, certainly this is an easier thing said than done. How we interpret the Bible and what truths and doctrines you come up with are, are, are always at times debatable. But Lord, there's also a tremendous amount of unity. But within 2,000 years of Christianity, and I pray, God, that we might tap into that unity as a church over the next few months. God, we thank you for each person here in this room, for the fact that they matter to you. And that there's not one person here today, not one who's beyond the grasp of your grace. So grasp us with your grace, we pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, we all say together, Amen. amen. God bless you. We'll see you all next week.